0: Napoleon is not my friend. Although we have certain things in common. 1804 to 1818, you know well, Napoleon laid claim to the title Emperor of the Universe or something similar to that. I don't know what exact title was. And for 10 years, he was the emperor of the known universe in some senses. He was victorious on the battlefield. He translated that victory in battlefield to absolute power over everything In his domain. Of course, in 1814, Napoleon was defeated. uh, An ill-advised jaunt into Russia ended up resulting in that. And they made him emperor of his own tiny little island. (laughs) An island called Elba in the Mediterranean. He was exiled for punishment. Although they let him retain the title emperor, which in hindsight was probably a mistake. Because Elba had a certain amount of population to it. And there were certain people that had gone there in, uh, you know, like sympathy to Napoleon and all of that. So what does the little emperor do on his little island? He builds a new little army. He builds a new army. He builds a new navy on this island. And I'm not making this up. And no joke, okay, a year after being in exile, Napoleon leaves his little island where he has been exiled, lands in France, and marches with his army to Paris and reclaims his what he believes is his rightful place as emperor of the universe or whatever it was. And for a hundred days, he was back in charge. Think about that. The audacity of this little man, (laughs) the self-centeredness, the vainglory, of course, in 1815, in that same year, he was defeated finally and ultimately at the Battle of Waterloo, June 15th. Listen, he, when he was in exile, all he could think about was restoring his glory. He had a vision on his, his island in exile. He had a vision, and that vision was of himself wearing the crown again, having all the authority again, being the top dog again. His vision was of his greatness. And frankly, I think often we struggle as we live in some circumstances, like in exile, as we face challenges and difficulties, as we face opposition, as we face painful circumstances, we could be tempted to be either little Napoleons or little anti-Napoleons. If we're like a little Napoleon, our vision is of our greatness. And we are the center of our universe, and so when we struggle, we respond with anger and bitterness. We should have what we want when we want it. Things should go rightly. And it's, of course, this is an extreme expression, but sometimes it's how we think, where we are, again, we are the center of our world. And so we, we act with, with a vision of ourselves, right? That's what drives our response. That would, that's what drives how we react to our circumstances, little Napoleons. Or you might be the little anti-Napoleon. If the Napoleon was the conqueror, Right? The audacity of this guy. I want to build another army. I'm coming back for more. Right? The, the anti-Napoleon is the opposite of the conqueror. It's the one who's easily conquered. And maybe when you're in exile, you're a little, little bit more Eeyore-ish. Right? Figures. Right? This is where I belong. Right? I, I despair, like despair and, and discouragement. Like that's, that's, your, that's your natural. Sure, of course they beat me. Of course I lost. Of course, I have this problem. Of course, I have that problem. Of course, this is, you know, and we're just constantly heaping the woes on us, right? Here, the vision, it's, we're still in the middle of it, but it's, it's not so much that we're in the middle of it in glory. We're in the middle of it in just suffering, right? It's still all about us and our suffering. There was another exile in the Mediterranean. It happened a long time before Napoleon's. The apostle John was exiled to Patmos, not for the brutal pursuit of his own glory, but for faithfully following Jesus. And when John was in his exile, he also had a vision. His vision wasn't created by himself. His vision was given to him by God. It was not a vision of his own glory. It was not a vision of his defeat. It was a vision of Jesus. That's what he needed most. It's what the church of his day needed most, and it's what we need most today. This vision in Revelation chapter 1 of Jesus is designed to equip us to endure difficult circumstances by faith. And as we're going to see, the vision that God gave John was not a vision that says, I'm going to rescue you from exile. And the vision that God gave the church there in Asia Minor in the first century is not, oh, it's going to get easier and the Roman Empire is going to go lighter on you. And the vision he gives to us today is not necessarily that I'm going to heal your sickness or I'm going to make you rich or I'm going to solve that problem. The vision he gives to us is a vision of Jesus in his glory. He says, if you're going to follow me today, you need to know who I am. So I don't know what your struggle is, I don't know which island you're exiled on this morning. But I do know this, no matter which one it is, we need a vision of Jesus. So let's take a look at these details here in Revelation 1 and see how this vision of Jesus equips us to live and endure by faith. Picking it up in verse 9, okay, remember, this is a letter written to a bunch of churches. It would have been circulated around, but it's also an apocalyptic vision, as we'll see. In chapter 1, verse 9, John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so here John identifies himself, the apostle John identifies himself as the brother of those in the church, a fellow believer, and a partner together with them in the kingdom of God. So John is identifying with the church He is not asserting himself as an authority over them, although he was that. But instead, he says, listen, we're in this together. And again, as he's writing from exile, right, that would have communicated something very seriously to the churches. It would have communicated that he felt himself to be akin to his brothers or sisters who will go through different kinds of struggles. His struggle was extreme, living out the rest of his days in exile under the punishment of the Roman Empire. But they would go through different trials, different difficulties. And so he says, we're in this together. Specifically, they're partners in three things, he says. The affliction, the kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. By affliction, he's acknowledging the fact that he was facing persecution, and they would as well. But he's also partners with them in the kingdom, recognizing the reality of God's kingdom, even though it might not look like much at the time. And thirdly there, that they're partners together in endurance. All of these are in Jesus. The the need to endure because of the affliction and because they're a part of the kingdom. Therefore, they need to endure, right? So he's, he's on this island called Patmos. Why? Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he's been sent there precisely because of his work as an apostle. So they were... We don't know if it was, it probably wasn't the emperor. It was a local governor probably who had sent him there. We know that this island in the Mediterranean was used for that at this day and age. So there he is because he was preaching the gospel, because he was ministering to churches, because he was telling people that they needed to repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus, that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. That was causing problems. So they said, you're out. We're sending you to Patmos. So there he is punished in exile. Watch verse 10. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. So here, the Lord's day was Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection, the day the early church gathered for worship. The reason we gather for worship on Sunday is because of that. So he says, there I was, I was in the spirit, right? Uh, Focusing on God's glory because of the spirit of God in light of the work of Jesus on his behalf, right? Uh, And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. So here's this loud voice in the middle of his, his time of uh, worship there uh, in exile in Patmos. What did the voice say? Verse 11, saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So uh, at this point, we're writing to churches in Asia Minor. I'll show you where these are on the map just so you not, don't get confused, especially about Philadelphia. Um, Make sure we get the right one. So here's Patmos. Here's Patmos. Okay, tiny island in the Mediterranean. Um, Pleasant climate, but they didn't use it for pleasant purposes in the first century. I can show you. I think I have a picture to show you just what it looks like today. So um, yeah, this is actually all part of the island. It's like a little, almost in a C shape, uh, the shape of the letter C. Um, And again, listen, these are either folks that have come on a biblical tour and and they're seeing that. Uh, or they're coming to just hang out because of the glorious weather. Uh, in isolation, though, without provision, not going to be a pleasant place in the long haul. So, you know, sometimes we picture like, you know, a desert island. It's not, it wasn't desert, but it wasn't, you know, he was deprived of, uh, of necessities and contact with the rest of culture. Let's, let me show you where the seven churches are in Asia Minor here. The, the listing of the churches is probably in order of the postal route, <laughs> the order in which they would have been visited. I, I kid you not. And the idea, of course, is that each of these churches has a specific struggle, a real historical struggle in the first century. Now... It was a circular letter, so they all got to read each other's letters. So that meant that all of the advice and instruction was beneficial for all the churches. And as we go through Revelation, we'll see that this is applicable for all churches of all time. Okay, so we'll talk about each of these in turn when we get to those uh, starting next week. Okay, so here he's not far uh, in some senses, but he can't go to them. So here he's, he's going to write to them. But all of this is initiated by Jesus. The loud voice says, write on the scroll what you see and and send this out to all these churches because the people need to know, in spite of what they're going through, they need to know what's important. They need to know what's true right now, and they need to know in some senses what is coming. And so these are the circumstances uh, of this initial, or of the letter that John writes to the churches. We'll we'll go over again them in, in much detail over the next few weeks. If we think about just this first section, though, we really need to camp on the fact that John identifies himself as our brother and our partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. We are partners together in those three categories, in affliction, in the kingdom, and in endurance. And as we think about that, let's just unpack them one concept at a time. First of all, we're partners in the affliction, which means we have to acknowledge that persecution push back right, is a thing. And we've said it often, and we'll we'll say it throughout the book of Revelation, but we are not facing the same kind of persecution that some Christians would have faced in the first century. We don't have pastors getting sent into exile in other places, okay, in in this country yet. Uh, We we don't have uh, Christians being imprisoned because of their faith, Uh, We don't have Christians being publicly executed as a warning to the rest of the population. Hey, don't get too crazy about this Jesus stuff, okay? So all those kinds of things would have happened in the first century at times and at places in the Roman Empire. Nonetheless, we do face pushback for our faith today. And we just have to acknowledge that. Even though it's not the extreme, we still face some. And when we face that pushback, we need to remember that we are partners together as the family of God, we are partners in this affliction. How are you, you going to face persecution? Well, it could be culture-wide, as our culture increasingly adopts a negative stance towards believers. And, and that is a fact, okay? That's like a documented fact. You can see it happening um, in, in media, in, uh, even in, news, in the way news is communicated, in art, in, in the way uh, stories are depicted. It, believers are increasingly framed in a negative light. And so you just got to know, that's a thing, right? That, that increasingly in the culture, I'm going to be made fun of for being a believer, implicitly. Just that's a, that's a part of it. We can also, though, face persecution on a personal level, where things just get awkward. Maybe within a family, maybe extended family, at, at a workplace, at, at school. Where all of a sudden, when somebody finds out that you're actually serious about Jesus, and then it's like, ah, okay, now there's a little bit of a thing there. And maybe they they give you that look like, do you really believe this? You're really one of those kinds of people, right? And they immediately assume things about you that may or may not be true, right? And so there's a relational awkwardness that comes with it. In some cases, there might actually be, uh, you know, punishment that comes with people figuring out you're a believer. Now all of a sudden you get made fun of more. I personally know people who have been fired from jobs because their Christianity put them in an antagonistic situation between them and their boss. And so they lost their job because of it. They get passed over for promotion. They get bad grades on an assignment. I know people personally that's happened to in school where they've gotten a bad grade on an assignment because their faith uh, has put them, again, in an awkward spot with their professor. And so those things happen today right now. So you just have to acknowledge that we are brothers and sisters in the affliction. We're partners in the affliction at the moment. But secondly, we're also partners in the kingdom. We have a commission. We are now a part of the kingdom of God. We are called to to glorify God by spreading his gospel message to, to make disciples of Jesus and then to mature those disciples of Jesus as we mature. And crucially, what we are called to together, what we're partners in, it's not our kingdom this is where napoleon had it so wrong like it was his kingdom that he was so focused on but we're not called to our kingdom we're called as as ambassadors of his kingdom we saw that last week in verse 6 where jesus has secured us to be a part of the kingdom of god and we are now priests in that kingdom serving for god's glory so it's not our kingdom there's some clarification here it's easy to confuse kingdoms. And while our families are important, our schooling is important, our careers are important, they all are important under the umbrella of God's kingdom. You know how we get messed up though? When we when we exalt our family to being the ultimate kingdom or our career to being the ultimate kingdom or our educational pursuit, it's the ultimate kingdom where nothing else trumps family, nothing else trumps career, nothing else trumps my pursuit of this degree or whatever. But really the... The only thing nothing should trump would be God's kingdom. And we are created to to live in a family, to have a career, to pursue education, to do that how? As image bearers of God, as his representative kings and queens, to, to live in ways that glorify him as we work, as we learn, as we function in a family, in a community. So all those things are good pursuits, but they are not the kingdom. You know, it's so important for John to say this out loud because, man, the kingdom of God didn't look like much in the first century. Churches didn't have nice buildings like this. I mean, the Roman Empire was everywhere. You, could, you know, you couldn't walk a mile in the Roman Empire, literally, without remind, being reminded of the fact that you were in the Roman Empire. They were the ones that had the power, the authority. It was Caesar's kingdom. But here John says, no, we're brothers and sisters in a different kingdom. We have to be careful we don't confuse kingdoms. Thirdly, of course, we are partners in the endurance that is in Jesus. What does that mean? It means this. We're in it together. It's going to be hard. Let's get after it, right? We're in it together, not, not as solo, you know, participants. We're in this together as a team, as a family, right? And so we are, as the church, we are brothers and sisters, and we know it's going to be hard because of the affliction, So we're going to endure. We're going to work hard together. Endure things like what? Well, for John, he's talking about exile. For some believers, it would be imprisonment, confiscation of their personal property, even even actual execution. For most believers, even then, as today, it's not those extreme things. We're going to have to endure all the things we just talked about. The awkwardness, the pushback from the culture, the drama here, the drama there. So we're going to have to say, okay, wait a minute. I know it's going to be hard to follow Jesus today, right now, And so we need to commit to do it together. It means adjusting our expectations. Don't expect it to be easy to follow Jesus. Don't expect the culture to favor you because you are a follower of Jesus. Don't expect to be in the majority because you follow Jesus. You should expect awkwardness and opposition. And you should even expect rejection because of your faith in Jesus. Why? Well, as Jesus himself warns us, the world will treat us as it treated him. We have to be careful and be ready. Now, if we're going to endure, okay, if we're going to be shipped off to exile, imprisoned, or whatever else, if we're going to endure, we have to have a vision. We have to have clarity on what matters most. And so that's exactly what Jesus gives John. So here on this Sunday, he tells him, I'm going to give you this vision, write it down, send it to those churches. They need it. We need it. Watch verse 12. This is so great. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. You know, literally it says, I turned to see the voice. What do you mean, see the voice? It, it, it reads almost like it, the voice was so powerful and so compelling. I, I, John's like, I thought I could have seen it. Like, I could have turned around and seen the voice. I mean, here we, you know, we smooth it out in translation. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when he turns, what does he see? Verse 12, when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, just pause right there, okay? That might not mean much to you, okay? But he, we have to bring our Old Testament with us in the New Testament. Can I get an amen? We, you gotta bring, bring that Old Testament with you when you come, okay? Listen, the, the lampstands, the lampstand probably in view is the lampstand that would have been in the temple. There was just one in the temple. And uh, it's actually pictured in another vision in the Bible, in Zechariah chapter 4. That vision is fueled, that, excuse me, that lampstand would have been fueled by oil, and that oil was representative of the Holy Spirit, okay? And so there's, there's uh, you know, important symbolic, uh, you know, significance to the lampstand. But here, John doesn't see one lampstand. He sees uh, seven golden lampstands. So we're kind of like in a temple, you know, zone a little bit, but what's going on? Seven golden lampstands. Watch verse 13. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Now listen, Jesus tells us at the end, I'll give it to you now, though. The lampstands are representative of the churches. We've got seven churches, seven lampstands. Who's at work in the church? The Spirit of God, right? Just like we learn in Zechariah 4. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by the Spirit of God that these things are going to be occurring. And so here, John's vision that that Jesus gives him is a vision of all these seven lampstands. Maybe we should picture them in a circle, perhaps, okay? But there, right in the center of the lampstands, is one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. This imagery comes primarily from Daniel, Chapter 7, okay, the the vision of the Messiah who's going to return to earth and judge the earth, okay? And so the Messiah is called there the Son of Man. And so here, Jesus is identified as that Messiah. He's one like, pictured like a Son of Man. Again, intentionally drawing on that language. He's dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. What does all that indicate? It indicates uh, Jesus functioning both as king and priest, He's a priest because he's among the lampstands and he's ministering, serving, you know, working with the lampstands. So that's what a priest does. The robe, is it a priestly robe possibly, or it could be the kingly robe? We don't know. The golden sash would have been indicative of kingly authority. Okay, so here's Jesus with this authority to function as king and priest overall in the midst of these lampstands. Verse 14 the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. That white indicates wisdom. And the capacity for, for sound judgment. And his eyes are like a fiery flame. And the fiery flame there indicating the fact that Jesus has authority and passion to judge. He can judge the earth. Verse 15, his feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. There, the reference is to moral purity. Moral purity as it relates to his right to rule. So Jesus is pure. There is no uh, deficiency in him. There never was. And his voice, John writes, is like the sound of cascading waters. You ever been captivated by the sound of the ocean or the sound of a waterfall? Multiply that times infinity. And there's what he's talking about. A sound that is both sweet and pleasant and yet also compelling. that, That you can't turn away. Verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand. We'll see those seven stars are visions or symbols of seven angels serving the churches. And also he has a sharp double-edged sword coming from his mouth. That double-edged sword is a picture of judgment. Where Jesus not only has the right to judge, but he has the right to execute judgment. Judgment. And his face was what? Was shining like the sun at full strength. Symbolizing his power and authority. His glory. Can't look away. You see, this is Jesus. And these aspects of Jesus' character, that the vision that he gives John reveal, right? His character, it functions as the bedrock for John's faith for the faith of those believers in those seven churches so long ago, and the bedrock for your faith and for my faith. The bedrock for our faith is the character of Christ. This picture of Jesus is given intentionally to help us focus on what we need to know to endure the difficult circumstances that we're going to face. And so there's a lot of different truths about Jesus, but here John says you need to see Jesus as he is, particularly in these ways. And so he focuses On Jesus being the Messiah, the ruler, the king, the priest, the judge. Why? Because rulers today will so often fail us. Even the ones you voted for. You ever been disappointed by someone you voted for? Don't say amen too loudly. You ever been been disappointed by someone you voted for? I have. I grew up in California. The first election I was able to participate in was the one when the the governator was running. <laughs> I voted for the governor. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I did. I'm not sure it worked out. Whatever. <laughs> Listen, the, our rulers will fail. They will fail us. But there's one ruler who never fails. Why do we need to see Jesus with white hair? <laughs> because young people, you need to know <laughs> that wisdom comes with age. And Jesus is eternally preexistent. So his wisdom is second to none. His wisdom is second to none. In an age where foolishness is, and it's not new. It's like, not like, oh, now all of a sudden people are more foolish. We've been foolish since the garden. But man, sometimes it's just painful to see it, isn't it? Sometimes it's painful, not because they are stumbling in foolishness, but because we're stumbling in foolishness. And there's Jesus with that flaming white hair and those fiery eyes. Fiery eyes that are in the game, always focused on what matters most. His bronze feet indicating, again, that moral purity. You think we need to be reminded of Jesus's moral purity today? As our culture continues to erode, I mean, we're not that different from the Roman Empire. It was probably worse. But nonetheless, here we are living in a culture where we see morality continue to slip away. In our culture, philosophically, it's interesting. We don't even have anything to base morality on. And so there's, there's no shared there's no shared worldview. There's no shared means of saying, oh, this is what is right, and this is what is wrong. It's very much a moving target. And in all of that, here John sees this vision of Jesus with the, those feet of, of pure bronze that are clean and have all the impurities are, are, are uh, burned out of that bronze because he is eternally pure. There is no deficiency in his character. We need to know that. And his voice like the water's. We're seeking satisfaction in so many other places. John's like, I never heard anything like it. And it was sweet. And it was all-encompassing. It's what I needed. And I thought the money would do it, but it didn't. Or I thought the applause from my friends on social media would do it, but it didn't. I thought getting the grades or getting the job or having that house or whatever, it would do it, but it didn't you know what brought satisfaction in my soul? The voice of Jesus. We need to hear that voice. The double-edged sword. The capacity for right judgment. We've talked about it recently, but it's worth mentioning again that our courts don't always get it right. We live live in a world broken by sin, and that means that sometimes judges don't get it right. But Jesus' judgment is perfect. And he comes with the right and authority to judge and the will to get it done. In his, in, in his face, with the glory and strength. I mean, again, we're reaching for glory in so many different ways in our culture, as every culture does. But here's the reality. We're reaching for glory in places that you can never find it. Um, speaking of glory, I don't know if you know, Georgia won the national championship in football recently. i have aware of that. Um, you're welcome, babe. So... My in-laws are from Georgia. Okay, I I didn't know what Georgia was (laughs) until I met Lindsay. So I didn't know what pound cake was before I met Lindsay. And, uh, you know, so Georgia, so there, there goes Georgia. They, they win the national championship. They finally beat their foe, their nemesis. I mean, this is a great story in general, so f- allow me a little latitude here. But, uh, so they f- beat him in the rematch. So glorious. First championship in 41 years. Oh, it's so great. Confetti, the whole thing. Uh, we're up late. We're watching the game. And you know what I did during the post-game, fells, fo- the post-game celebration? Yeah, I fell right asleep. Yeah. You know what Kirby Smart did, the coach for the national championship, Georgia Bulldogs, the next morning? You know what he did? He told his defensive coordinator to get off the text thread with the staff because he was going to coach another team. <laughs> because, he, I mean, it was, he had to. It was like, hey, man, we love you. Great job, but you're out. <laughs> Why? Because it's over. 41 years chasing glory. They finally got the glory. And now, I mean, those, those hats are already discounted. And I just say it to say this, that sometimes we can get co- so caught up in seeking glory from an earthly source, Right? fame success what you know whatever we think it's good and listen it's the face of jesus that shines like the sun at full strength there's no other place you're going to find meaning and significance like that you know the glory is another word for greatness and here the greatness of god is on display in the face of jesus john says shining in such a way that he couldn't look away so john's in exile right He's in exile, and it's like, woe is me. How can I get off this island? Should I raise my own army, right? Right, woe is me. Like, either I need to go conquer, or I've been conquered, and I'll never get off in despair and discouragement. But, John, you know, Jesus says, John, you don't need either of those approaches. What you need to know, John, is who I am. And although it, do- it might not seem like it, this is who I am. And we get this glorious vision of Jesus in power and authority, purity, wisdom, righteousness, ready to judge, right? I mean, we, just glorious. And Jesus says to John, this is what you need to know. This is who I am. You don't need an army, and you're not defeated. Even though you're in exile, what you need is me. Where is Jesus? He's standing in the middle of the lampstands. That's significant. Seven lampstands representing the churches, but where is Jesus? Right in the middle. I can just tell you, there are so many distractions that we will face as a church that we do face, where people are trying to convince us what should be in the middle of the lampstands. Your building program should be in the middle, the parking lot should be in the middle. This ministry strategy should be in the middle. This pastor should be in the middle. This seminary should be in the middle. This, you know, all the things we could put in the middle to say what's the most important of the churches. But we have to, we have to catch the vision here. The only one worthy to be in the middle of the lampstands is Jesus. And if we are going to walk by faith in hard times as a church, it has to be Jesus in the middle of the lampstands. We can't get distracted. We were talking about it in the ABF this morning, but it's important, I think, to recognize that often our culture attempts to dictate terms to us as a church, to tell us what is most important. And while we do live in these times, we have to respond to what's going on in the world around us. We don't stick our heads in the sand, absolutely. What we never can do, though, is put something other than Jesus in the middle of those lampstands. We have to let Jesus call the shots in his church. We have to let Jesus equip us to walk by faith and navigate challenging times. And the culture might say to us, you have to care about this most. We might have to say, well, hold on. While that may be important, we have to care about what Jesus calls us to most and interpret whatever they're concerned about in light of who Jesus is. And who is he? He is glorious. You see, the bedrock of our faith has to be the character of Jesus. You need this vision of Jesus because this is not who Jesus will be and it's not who Jesus was. Guess what? It's who he is right now. We need this when we're afraid. We need this when we're distracted. We need this when we're failing. We need this when we're doubting. We need this when we're tempted to throw in the towel. We need to see Jesus for who he is. And the fact is, we're not this. We don't always get it right. Our feet are pure, polished bronze of moral purity. Even those of us with white hair aren't that wise. Our eyes aren't always fiery, on you know, right on target there. And we certainly don't always judge rightly. And we're not, we're not shining, beaming glory out of our faces. Now, we got to acknowledge that. We just say, yeah, I'm in exile. And I may not look like much today, but I know the one whose voice sounds like cascading waters. And he's the one in the middle of the lampstands. Well, so what? Verse 17. Watch what happens here. It's not just that he sees Jesus. Watch how John responds. When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet Like a dead man. Why? Just pause. Why? Because of the glory of God on display. We see this regularly throughout the Bible. When sinners are exposed to the glory of God, their first and right instinct is to bow. You know, Daniel collapses. It's like there's no, I I just, I gotta get down. I, I gotta get down. And so he falls at his feet like a dead man. And yet, watch, this is so tender. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. There's more to it, but it's powerful because John, (laughs) I mean, that was was a Sunday morning. That's all I got to say, right? That was a Sunday morning. He hears the voice, he turns around, he sees the vision, and he just falls down, rightly so. And yet what he sees is not this powerful, majestic, glorious Jesus coming at him with the two-edged sword. No, that powerful, glorious, majestic Jesus puts his hand on John. He says, hey, guess what? I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You see, because it's not just that Jesus is this glorious, it's that he's this glorious and he loves us. So he says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. We talked about it last week, but I'll just remind you, that means he's got it all. He's sovereign over it all. From start to finish, A to Z, it's his. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And the living one. Why is that significant? I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. (laughs) Jesus says, yeah, no, I seriously, I've got this. Like, I'm the living one. And yes, I died. John knew. But he rose from the dead. And he, so he says, I'm alive forever. Death has been defeated. Death is a loser because of Jesus. And Jesus says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. By the way, uh, in Greco-Roman mythology, right? You have, uh, in the Greek version, Hades, God Hades holds the keys over, over death. and has the authority over that. No, Jesus holds those keys. So it's a correction here to the false religious viewpoint of the day where Jesus says to John, to the churches, he says to us, I am the boss of death. It belongs to me. I hold the keys to that one. Beat it. Yep. Do you know what people today fear more than anything else? Death. Do I need to remind you? We've restructured everything in the world around a fear of death. And guess what? You can't stop it from coming when God ordains that it's coming, but you can face it with confidence knowing what? The one who holds the keys. I mean, th- this, is, this is revolutionary. And this message is designed for people who are facing d- risky circumstances like living in exile or facing Roman imprisonment or possibly facing death. And so he says, you just need to know, the worst they can do to you is kill you. And Jesus is like, been there? It's okay. I got it. I'm the living one. I'm alive forever. I hold the key. I I defeated death. So there's this message of hope anchored, not just in the character of Jesus, but then in, in Jesus's victory on our behalf. He died for our sins, yes, but he rose from the dead which that, meant, that means that we now have genuine hope to walk by faith, even if it means that walking by faith means risking our lives. We don't have to be afraid. We can worship. And then he explains, he explains the vision. Therefore, write, verse 19, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. I think that's not a strict chronology. Some commentators think verse 19 is a strict chronology of the book. I don't think that's the case. In Revelation, it's very clear. Some things that he reveals refer to like the whole of history, and some of them are yet to come. And we'll we'll walk through that as we get to those sections. But the point with John, he's like, write it all down. Like they need all of it. They need to know what's going on right now. They also need to know what's going to come in some senses. So we're going we're to reveal some of that. So make sure you write it down and get it to the churches because you need it. And then verse 20 explains the, the symbols. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so this is what Jesus is saying. He says to John, here's the deal. I defeated death. I am the one who lives forever. I hold the keys of death. I'm sovereign over all of history. And what you saw with the lampstands, he says the lampstands are the seven churches, and we certainly should take those seven churches to then represent all of the church throughout all time. So there's the whole church. And what is Jesus doing with his right hand? He's distributing angels to minister to the churches. Do you know what that means? That means today, Jesus is invested in our success as a body of Christ. We could say it this way. Our sovereign Savior does what? He sustains His church. Even when apostles get sent in exile. Even when governments pass laws that are contrary to our faith. Even as we face difficult times physically and financially culturally as a family right at work whatever you're facing in the midst of all that you need to know that our sovereign savior he's sovereign over all of it he sustains his church is there one angel for every local church i don't know maybe actually if you read if you look read carefully in the old testament it does seem like uh, angels have geographic areas of responsibility. I kid you not. So Daniel, we find this out. Angels kind of have geographic areas of responsibility, perhaps. So maybe there's an angel over North Jersey. Well, I don't know. Maybe there's an, maybe it's an angel over Green Pond. I don't know. Maybe. What is that angel's job? That angel's job is not to give us whatever we want. That angel's job is not to appear to you, you know, at night in your house. What is that angel's job? that angels' job is to facilitate the advancement of God's kingdom. It's to sustain the church. And what might be best for the church is hard. What might be best for us, right? It, it, It might be difficult times, challenging times. But what you can never doubt is that Jesus loves his church, that he is sustaining his church, And that even death cannot overtake it. And so there's there's encouragement here. I mean, listen, you're sitting in Thyatira, okay, 2,000 years ago, and this letter gets read to you. And there's a moment here, I think, at the beginning where you just go, dude, that is amazing. Like Jesus cares about us way more than I thought he did. Because, you know, that law was passed this week, and it seems like Jesus doesn't care. Or I got that diagnosis this week, and it just doesn't feel like that matters much. Or, oh, man, you should have what my kids said to me this week. What happened at school? What I read this week? Man, there's just so much. But what we need to know, the vision we need, is of Jesus, glorious, glorious, But then ministering to those lampstands, taking care of us. Isn't that ultimately what he's done for us in the cross and the empty grave? He's made it possible for us to have confidence and hope in the midst of any circumstance. Maybe you're here this morning and you are a foreigner to that hope. Because you just don't buy it. You don't buy that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And I just have to tell you that one of, the, one of the functions of a passage like this is for you to see Jesus as who he is. Maybe you've had a faulty view of Jesus in the past. You've refused to believe because you've been given a precious moments Jesus. You're familiar with the precious moments Jesus? Like the really soft and, you know, whatever. Or maybe your Jesus that you've been presented with was Republican. Right? Wearing a red hat. Right? Well, that's not Jesus either. We have to correct those cultural misunderstandings, but maybe you've never believed because you've never seen him as he truly is. And here he stands, glorious with all that authority over it all from A to Z. And yet he puts his hand on us and says, don't be afraid. I'm here for you. I'm glorified by rescuing you. So I died for you and I rose for you. And In fact, I'm distributing my angels to minister to my church. So maybe you should come. Maybe you should finally repent of your sin and come with empty hands to Jesus and trust him for forgiveness, yes, and join some brothers and sisters in what? In the affliction, in the kingdom, and in endurance. For those of us who are followers of Jesus this morning, we need to heed this message. We must be prepared to endure persecution. We must be ready to comfort victims with this real hope in the midst of tragedy and difficulty. We must have confidence in God's plan as we minister to one another. We have to remind each other that death is not defeat. And so it's okay when we struggle even to the point of death. And we've got to be confident that God is working in his church today. It's not, his care is not absent when we struggle. It's not limited by our intelligence. It's never at risk. Okay, it's never like, oh, I don't know if he's going to come through. His care always has a purpose and therefore we should value, right, his church the way he does. And so we gather together. We use our gifts for one another. We bear burdens with one another, not because we can do it, but because he's at the center of the lampstands. You see, our sovereign Savior sustains His church, and He's doing it today. We need this most when we forget that He's doing it, when we doubt that He's doing it, when we struggle to believe that He's doing it. He'll sustain you. The question is, will we trust Him? Napoleon comes back from Elba, Da-da-da-da, triumphant emperor of the universe, has power again for a hundred days. And then, what ends up happening? June 15th, 1815, Waterloo. Where he was defeated again. Guess what they did? They exiled him again. Except this time they said, not the Mediterranean. Send him out in the Atlantic. So they sent him to St. Helena. It was a much smaller group that was exiled with Napoleon this time. And the British oversaw it, so he had terrible food. So it was all going to, you know, work out. So... Sorry, Micah Marie. Anyway, uh, so so he ends up in the Atlantic. He's in Saint Helena. This is I, and I kid you not. These are this is true. Okay, so here's you know he's not emperor anymore, right? And he's there with like ten people on this tiny little island. Like it's nothing. All right. He still he still demands to be called emperor by his group of faithful followers to the very end, which is ridiculous. And on top of that, for six years, they keep having dinner parties where he also demands they dress in full, like formal attire to be in the presence of the emperor. So there's like seven of them. I don't know how many, but let's say there's seven. So it's like seven of them. And for six years, they're having dinner and they're having to call Napoleon, his majesty, on an island in exile in the middle of the Atlantic. The denial of this human being is just just astounding to me. He still wanted everyone to act as if he was the center of the universe. And I just, I laugh at that. And then some days I just think, you know what? There we are still acting like I'm the center of the universe. Whether it's in trying to conquer it all or whether it's in just feeling conquered. And in that denial, I have forgotten who the real emperor is. I tell you what, for all his denial, there was no doubt Napoleon wasn't emperor of the universe. He couldn't accept it. He couldn't change in light of it. But you know what? By God's grace, we can. The question is, will you? Would you pray with me? We'll ask God to help us do just that. Lord, we thank you for uh, these crucial verses here in Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20. Words that we need to hear, Lord. The vision that we need to see. And Lord, we confess this is not a vision of us. It is a vision of you. And we praise you for that. And Lord, help us. As no doubt we all need to be corrected in some measure this morning. Help us. Maybe we're leaning a little too much towards conquering everything ourselves. Lord, maybe we're leaning towards being conquered and feeling in despair and in discouragement. But Lord, we praise you and thank you. For this vision, Lord Jesus, of you in the center of the lampstands ministering to your church. Lord, we know that this vision is designed to equip us to endure by faith. And so we ask that you would help us to do just that. To see you in your glory and then to respond rightly. To not fear, Lord, but to worship. And Lord, as we're tempted to question and to doubt, Lord, we pray that you would comfort us with this vision which is always true and accurate. Lord, I pray for those who are really struggling this morning. I you know there are so many. And I just ask that you would mercifully give us, by your grace, give us a sense of confidence in you. May the sound of your voice be pleasant to us and, and compelling. And as we look to your face, may we see this shining glory and be reminded that there is greatness nowhere else except for in you. And Lord, we praise you that you died for our sins and rose from the dead, that you are the living one and that you hold the keys to death and Hades. And therefore, Lord, you are trustworthy even when times are hardest. So prepare us, Lord, to live by faith, to glorify you in these troubling times that we face. We ask these things in your name, our glorious Lord, amen.